Welcome to the Stott Legacy. He is within us. He shares in the pay. We must not ask God to change his timetable because we're getting a little bit impatient. Well, think of the beginning of the first letter of Peter. John Stott was born on 27th of April, 1921. And in this, the centenary year of his birth, we're meeting different people around the world who either knew him or who were influenced by him. Please join me, Mark Mannell, as month by month we explore different aspects of the extraordinary life, ministry and legacy of Uncle John. You know, he, he was quoting from the newspapers. He was he was engaging with the stuff that, that we were reading and hearing on the, the radio and the television. And and then he was demonstrating how as a Christian uh, it was possible to 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 show how how Christianity really engaged with these issues in a very thoughtful, respectful and relevant way. And I was I was just blown away. That was Professor John Wyatt, Professor of Ethics and Perinatology and also Emeritus Professor of Neonatal Paediatrics, Ethics and Perinatology at University College London. As a paediatrician, he specialised in and led an intensive care unit for premature babies for about 25 years. But alongside his medical practice, he's also been a frequent contributor to the major ethical debates of our time. And this enabled him to play a significant part in the updates to John Stott's important book, Issues Facing Christians Today. Now, he first joined All Souls uh, Langham Place as a medical student in the 70s, but I'd previously assumed that he came to London straight from school. But that's not, in fact, how he started out his student life. I actually started off reading physics at Oxford, and I, I had a, a spiritual crisis um about because it was oxford or because it was physics <laughs> a bit of both to be honest <laughs> um about yeah about about my future life and and um i i was very confused spiritually i'd come from a very strict um brethren christian brethren upbringing um but it always felt very brainwashed and and felt it was rather claustrophobic and now for the first time i was getting away from home and could think my own thoughts I was fascinated by science I was a bit of a nerd uh, my <laughs> ideal uh, at that time I thought my ideal life would be to to do something on cosmology or uh, mm -hmm. quantum physics and I would sit in a lab and come out once every five years to check the world was still there and, and produce like... some brilliant theory <laughs> yeah exactly and and but then all of that uh, was 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 challenged by my uh Christian explorations and and it was really during that year that I came alive spiritually and and was both became convinced by the intellectual coherence of of Christianity but also by the the power of Christ and the attractiveness of Christ and the the person of Christ in my own life and so that led to then a crisis about my future and I felt a calling initially to to ministry in the global church I, I attended a missionary conference I remember and was deeply moved by the by and sensed this call from God I think John Stott actually was one of the keynote speakers at the conference and um, but then an increasing conviction that I should um, change from physics and, and train as a doctor and a, a deep sense of call of vocation which I couldn't really explain because uh, we, I didn't come from a medical family it wasn't in fact 
you know, as, a, as an adolescent, I had a horror of medicine and all that. And mm. so the idea that I was going to end up training to be a doctor was, was quite strange. Yet it just seemed absolutely clear that this was the right thing to do. And I had to leave Oxford for various reasons. I couldn't just change uh, to read um, medicine at Oxford. And, and a place opened for me quite, as I saw it miraculously, to, to come to London and start <clears throat> within the University of London as a medical student. And, and so I arrived in London um, and started trying out various churches and uh, wondering where to go. And uh, I started going to All Souls Church. And I have to admit, not because of the wonderful biblical preaching, uh, but because they had an orchestra. And, um, and, and you're a musician. I, I'm a musician. I was a trumpeter and, and a piano player. And, and um, a young uh, enthusiast called Noel Tradinic, long-haired with a beard. and beard at that point, uh, yes. Yeah, and, and looking almost like Rasputin, but, but very, very... <laughs> sort of charismatic and warm and with great ideas. And he was just starting this weird idea of having an orchestra uh, actually playing in services. And he was writing arrangements. And I was a, a founder member of the All Souls Orchestra as a trumpet player. And, um, and, and so that was my introduction and increasingly committed myself uh, to all souls and it was really through playing the trumpet i sort of became aware that there was john stott and he was preaching and this rather austere figure presumably by then he'd stepped down as rector had he or was that the transition period it was a transition period he was the rector mm -hmm. um and but michael bourne had arrived and michael bourne was quotes the vicar mm. and um Stott was doing a lot of the preaching. It was still a very traditional Anglican. We were all in vestments. Uh, I was also singing in the choir. We used to uh, process in wearing our surplices and mm. you know, pews. It was uh, almost unrecognizable from the, the All Souls Church now. And I'd had a few words with John Stott and, and but uh, really it was his sermons, which, which were so extraordinary and which initially mm. just uh, drew me to to the the power of his preaching. So what was different? Because presumably if you'd grown up in a Christian home and going to church, you'd heard a lot of sermons, but what stood out about his preaching particularly, or was it the others around him at All Souls at the time as well? No, it, it was, Stott was utterly unique right from the beginning, and it was, it was a combination. There was extraordinary spiritual authority about him you just sensed that this was a, a man who was not speaking theory mm. that he'd read in a book this, this was a man who was saturated in prayer and in experience of, of the the holy spirit and and the love of christ and and then when he spoke about it he it, it just he spoke with authority um but the other thing which really excited me was um a series of sermons he he did which on i think it was called issues facing christians today and mm. this is the 1970s mm. and <clears throat> he was taking the issues of the time and they were things like nuclear disarmament labor relations because there were huge strikes and <clears throat> breakdowns in society the winter of discontent uh, winter of discontent there was um, homosexual law reform. There was divorce, and it was—I mean, it was, a, it was a time of great social change in the UK. And and he was preaching about these topics, and I had never heard preaching like this before. 
you know, he, he was quoting from the newspapers. He was, he was engaging with the stuff that, that we were reading and hearing on the, the radio and the television. And, and then he was engaging with it in a, in a demonstrating how as a Christian, uh, it was possible to, to, to show how, how Christianity really engaged with these issues in a very thoughtful, respectful and relevant way. And I was, I was just blown away. I'd never heard preaching like this before, you know, coming from the brethren, if, if you heard, you know, preachers talking about modern problems, it was usually something like jazz or dancing. <laughs> <laughs> or go to the cinema. <laughs> <laughs> the cinema, good heavens, dear boy, don't mention it. Um, you know, and, and worldliness and, mm. and to that adrenaline rush, that, that, that hit me that Christianity was actually relevant to the stuff in the newspapers. Mm. Um, I've never forgot the impact it made on me. And, and, and later on that, that has become a kind of model for my own, mm. my own attempts to follow Stott's way. I mean, there's rather a nice um, trajectory in that, isn't there? Because you would go on to edit and develop later editions of the book that came out of that series. So you were there at the very beginning. Yes, remarkably. And, and of course, what I now realise was that Stott was on a huge journey. Right. You know, coming out of this huh. very traditional and, and pietistic um, background from uh, particularly Nash and the yep. Bash camps. And also, you know, the Stott who writes basic Christianity, in, in, in one sense, this is, this is the very best description of very conventional mm. reformed Christian thinking of of, mm. of the early 20th century and you know and, and the start who's taking those um, those missions in, in mm. Cambridge and, and elsewhere it, it's very much within um, a conventional understanding of, 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 of mm. Christian uh, preoccupations with, with salvation justification uh, new life in Christ and so on uh, and, and and as you've outlined in some of your previous podcasts of course that, that he was on this huge journey um, particularly which starts in his 40s which again is one of the remarkable things about him you know because so many Christian leaders and preachers having found a rich and fruitful ministry and a platform. in their 20s a platform opportunities respect books that are you know like basic christianity which are seized on and, and and translated and go around the world many many christian leaders would have said well I've, this is this is who i am this is what i do and i'm going to follow and plow this furrow for the next 50 years and, and that wasn't start um he he was always questing always thinking always challenging so help us a bit with with this idea of pietism so he, he's not losing his moorings, is he? But is it in the 70s and 80s, he's, is he broadening out? Or, or what actually is happening in that process? Yes, and you know, that's, that's a huge question and one which I don't feel worthy in a sense to really, you know, people have written PhDs and stuff on that. But I, you know, if, if I could give a, a baby doctor's perception on, on what was going on, pietism, really is this idea it's my personal relationship with Christ, mm -hmm. which is the central feature of, of the Christian faith. And 
you know, he he talked about how Nash had come to rugby school and mm. and had said, "What do you make of Jesus?" And that mm. and that was the question. And mm. I went away and I didn't know what what did I make of Jesus? He said, and and he wrestled on his knees until, you know, he'd come to faith. And it, and you know, the gospel as preached by Nash was the ABC: um, admit, believe, confess. Um, and it was all about my personal relationship with Jesus. And Stott never lost that. That was no. always at the heart of his own faith, mm. at the, the heart of his spirituality. And it often struck me, you know, when hearing him preaching or giving a very erudite, apologetic or evangelistic talk, and he'd be ranging across huge issues. This is later on in his life. Mm. Often at the end, he would come back to the heart of this evangelistic appeal, which he'd first heard from Nash and which he never, he never moved from. But I think what happened for him is that increasingly as he goes through his, his Christian pilgrimage, the God of the Bible becomes bigger and mm. bigger and bigger. And Christ becomes becomes bigger and more mm. all-encompassing and as he spends his his time just immersed in the scriptures on his knees worshiping that lord uh, he becomes increasingly convicted by the all-encompassing reality of the gospel so so i do actually think the gospel what is the good news what is the euangelion you know i understand that that word taken up by the, the new testament writers was simply <clears throat> the ordinary coiny greek for you know mm. good news um mm. peaches are are cheaper today or good news mm. we've just won a victory in carthage or or whatever and so they the early christian evangelists come and say euangelion good news jesus is risen and then mm. the question is well why is it good news why is jesus good news and pietism says, well, it's all because you can now in, have Christ in your heart and and love him and follow him and so on. And it's forever. <laughs> and it's forever. But Stott is, is saying, well, yes, that's true. But the good news, why Jesus is good news, it's good news for creation. It's good news mm. for society. It's good news for healthcare. It's good news for relationships, for the family. It's good news for politics across the world. Mm. He, he, he sort of eyes are being open to the extent of Christ's lordship. So he, he's investigating in a, an area he hasn't perhaps thought about, but he suddenly realized, well, Christ is here already. Exactly. Exactly. And, 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 and of course, he's listening. So the extraordinary right. thing about him right from the beginning, but I think particularly, I think there was a shift. And you've already alluded to this in some of the previous podcasts and, and unpicking precisely where that shift comes from it's interesting one of his biographers implies that part of his shift was because of dissatisfaction with what was mm. happening at all souls yeah and and, and and with this a sense that you know he'd he'd anticipated there was going to be you know mass conversions like as there had been in the 50s he would mm. anticipated that the church would be packed the parish would be transformed by by people becoming Christians, and it wasn't happening. There was a resistance. There was a, there was a, an incomprehension to, to evangelistic preaching. And I think, instead of just 
saying, well, that's the way it is, and we, you know, we, the people are just hostile. He was deeply troubled by that, and and he and that I think is what was one of the factors which led him on to this questioning: why is that? And he increasingly became convinced, and this was where it started to become controversial, that it's not just about truth claims about Christianity. It's not simply about the truth. Yes, he was always committed to truth claims of Christ and so on. But it's the relevance mm. of Christianity which becomes the key question for him. Uh, uh, why is, and, and he recounted to me, and I think he, he may have written about it, a conversation he had after one of his um, missions in uh, Cambridge, I think Moswick might have been some other big university town. And he he said he he'd preached his heart out. He had he had he totally given himself to try to demonstrate to this uh, audience of students the the relevance, the beauty of Christ, and and the truth about the gospel. And then afterwards, he was he was talking around as he often did, just hanging around <laughs> talking to people. And, and he 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 met these two young students, and he said, "Well, are you?" going to become a Christian and they they said well frankly no and and he said well why not are you not convinced about the truth of Christ and and they said words to the effect well to be honest we're not we're not that interested in the truth about you we're we're interested in in how relevant it is to the modern world and and he said well, what do you mean and he said well you know you're talking about stuff that happened 2000 years ago you're talking about an ancient you know mm. primitive religion you know we live in the world of the 20th century. We live in, you know, we're interested in technology and the space race and 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 mm. uh, we're living our lives in the modern world. You know, we just don't think your Jesus has much to say. Mm. And I think that conversation deeply mm. troubled him. He went back home uh, to his uh, flat and and he wrestled with 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 those kind of issues. And 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 that was opening up all kinds of other avenues as well. But he, yes. he, it was this thing about, and I think this is where double listening comes from. Yes. Um, and of course it was highly controversial. Yeah. Um, there were many people who felt he was almost betraying um, his faithfulness to Christ, you know, by saying that we should listen to the world. And, and there were many voices, I think, particularly in private saying to him, you know, you're, you're, you're going wrong. This is the social gospel. This is, yeah. you know, we don't listen to the world. We proclaim the truth. We tell the world what's gone wrong. I mentioned in our conversation that I'd never been particularly comfortable with the phrase double listening because it implies a kind of parity between the Bible and the world, which of course, Uncle John never implied, but I could see how the phrase was like a moth to a flame for some. So I asked John Wyatt whether he thought my assessment was fair. Well, I, well, I think it is fair. Um, well, it is and it isn't. So I, I think you're right that it could easily be misinterpreted, and that, and I think that many people chose to misinterpret it. Right. So many people criticised Stott without actually reading. Yes. With care, what he said. I mean, this was certainly the case later on with one of the most painful episodes, which happened to the him essentials with, book about, about hell and yeah. annihilationism and so on. And and what hurt him so deeply was that people waded in with a whole load of prejudices and simplistic pre 
conceptions about what he was saying without bothering to study in detail what he said. And and the same was true about double listening, that that if you read what he has, he carefully defines it in books like The Contemporary Christian and, and, and others, um, it's very clear that the way in which we listen is different. Yes. The way in which we listen to scripture is different from the way in which we listen to the world. But where he would say there was parity is he would say they are both equally important. That yes. it's simply not good enough to say, oh, well, of course, we listen to scripture and to imply that the other kind of listening is a kind of optional extra for a few eggheads. You know, he would say this is absolutely an essential part of following Christ, of, of Christian discipleship, is listening to the world. Now, I mean, you mentioned just now about um, how one or two biographers had picked up on this as a, and interpreted it as John sort of, you know, washing his hands and saying, well, obviously, it's not going to work here at all, so I'm going to look elsewhere, which sounds, it, 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 it doesn't make any logical sense, because if it doesn't work here, why try in the rest of the world? Um, no, yeah. it, it's far too simplistic. And I think, um, but he was troubled. He was troubled right. by the hardness of heart. He was troubled yes. by what was going on in the world. And, and he was determined to try to understand it. And so he, he, he started to put that into practice. And, and one of the, I think, the very influential things, and I just happened, you know, by God's grace to be around when all this was happening, is that he started a reading group for young people. Mm. And I happened to be a founder member. In fact, I, he asked me to organize it for him. So what year was that? It would be late 70s, yeah in order to carry he feels he needs to be much more in tune with what's going on mm. and he isn't you know he's a oxbridge educated bachelor sitting in his you know mm. in, in this very erudite environment and, and he's frankly, discipline is his middle name so he's yes, not like normal so, people <laughs> yeah no that's right and you know he doesn't spend a lot of time uh, just in the kind of ordinary world. And so he sets about how can he enlarge his understanding? And so, and, one, and I think there were many different things that he was doing, but one of the things he did was he started this reading group. And the idea was we were going to meet every six weeks and we were going to only, we were going to agree in advance to read a, a secular book and a book that wasn't a Christian book, a book that was, and the only criteria was that it would be influential in the at the time it was a book that was creating waves that people were talking about and that and we would read it and some of it was non-fiction some of it was a lot of it was the modern novels of the time and he got together this group of young people we were all of us in our late teens 20s uh connected with ourselves in some way and we selected the books entirely democratically so we would go around and discuss at the preceding week how many were you maybe 12, that sort of number, 10, 12, 8, 10, 12. And we would talk about, you know, I've come, I saw this book or I saw that lots of people are reading this. And, and then there was a rule. We had to read the book first before we would commend it to the group. And then and we thought, yes, this was an interesting and we'd like to discuss it. And, and over the years, we met, you know, uh, 10 times a year, uh, no more. No, no, yeah, about, about 10 times a year. And 
carried on for more than 10 years, I think. And we, we must have read, you know, 100 books or more. And it was an extraordinary experience because, you know, we were reading really weird stuff, you know, Carlos Castaneda about the, um, the weird... Um, Is that magical stuff? realism or something? Mag yes, kind of, there was Zen and the Art of Motorcycle oh, Maintenance, yes. which was by a guy called Robert Piercing. There was, and then there was things like The Selfish Gene by yeah. Dawkins. There was, there was a book about the AIDS plague, I remember weird stuff and then we we it gradually broadened and we started reading newspapers then we went and started films selecting films that we would go and see and mm. uh, exhibitions and so on and and then we would meet together and stock would be the eminence grease in the corner <laughs> and and we all the idiots and he was he would be you know he'd ask a few questions but he would be pretty sort of quiet just probing us asking us you know what did you make of this and, and, and would he and be jotting be, things down or just jotting mainly he was just remembering you know had extraordinary memory of, yeah. of, of, of just recalling it all occasionally he'd make a little note and, and we'd all discuss it among ourselves and you know and then and the two fundamental questions is what is the, what is the author trying to say what is what is the main uh, push from this either novel or whatever and then two how do we respond to this as as Christians as Orthodox Bible believing Christians, well, how on earth do we respond to this stuff? And, you know, and we would go all around the houses and so on. And then towards the end, Storm said, well, perhaps I could just make a few comments, you know. <laughs> and we'd hear this and we'd go, oh yeah, oh, oh that, oh yeah. yeah. How did I miss <laughs> that? <laughs> you know, one of the things we often used to amuse ourselves is then when we were listening to the sermons later on, <laughs> you know, in the church, you know, he would say, and one of the uh, most interesting books, you know, that's relevant here, isn't he? he would then quote the novel. You know? yeah. And then we were all sitting, waiting to hear what came out from the discussion, you know, and then and sometimes he would say, oh, no, no, some people may say, and then something came out, and we would say, yeah, that was me. And I said that, yes, that's but right. of course, that was completely a misleading and unhelpful. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, that's uh, brilliant. But, you know, it was, it was extraordinarily formative for all of us, but I'm sure it was formative. I know it was yes. formative for him. Yes. He's, he's, he's written about it. And, uh, but it was extraordinarily formative for me uh, because he was modeling how you do it, how you take something which seems completely from left field that has no relationship at all, like a Woody Allen film. <laughs> which he, had, he, had, he loved Woody Allen. He had this very curious sense of humor and james um, bond james bond he loved and 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 saki those very yes. strange and dark you know <laughs> it's a fascinating thing about him that that I, i've sometimes mused on that he loved the puncturing of pomposity if i can hear him right. saying and i i think he was exposed to a great deal of religious and other yeah. forms of pomposity and he was often extremely tempted to puncture it all and out of graciousness and Christ-likeness he didn't but but he loved seeing that um and in private he sometimes would tell wonderful stories and and, and some of it you know in confidence was about puncturing pomposities yes. and various um things that he'd been exposed to you carry on in this group after you've become a doctor and you stay at university college hospital Yes, um, I, I did. I worked in several different hospitals at right. the time, and and he, you know, by this time, the extraordinary thing is that is that he had reached out to me actually before the the reading group was formed. 
um, I'd seen him as this austere figure in the pulpit and we'd only exchanged a few words. Um, you know, he knew basically who I was, but I was about in my fourth year. And in retrospect, I think what was partly relevant was that I'd taken on responsibility within the London University CU. I, I, yep. I, I was on the executive and I, I subsequently learned that he often looked out for people who took on student leadership. He, he, hmm. as, as people to invest in, he, he, in hmm. other words, it wasn't so much people who talked a good talk. He hmm. was looking for evidence of genuine commitment to Christian service. Hmm. And and so I, I would be, you know, in my early 20s and I receive a message uh, through all souls, you know, would you like to come and have a cup of coffee with me? And I was really very nervous because... You thought you were in trouble. I was thought it was in deep trouble. I was being asked to see the headmaster <laughs> in this study. You know. like, what on earth have I done? I've been, I've been found guilty of gross heresy and, and <laughs> I'm going to be put right. And to my and I can remember going the first time and going along to Bridford Mews and pressing mm. the button and then walk you know and this voice um, come up my dear brother and um, <laughs> and I go up the little spiral Spencer and then and he welcomes me and, and welcomes me with a with a cup of instant coffee and a digestive biscuit you know and I I can still you know extraordinary here I am in the sort of the holy of holies with this great man and to my utter astonishment he he's just reaching out in friendship and and you know how can i pray for you and would like to tell me about being a medical student and uh, and then uh, just um offering friendship and and i can remember walking away from bridford muse and, and walking on air just couldn't mm. believe it that this that this wonderful christ-like um, man actually wanted to be a friend for to me and, and and that friendship you know lasted for more than 30 years and, and we we walked together he, he shared his heart with me we used to meet up quite frequently and and and, and he spent hours with me and I you know and I look back and I think you know he could have been writing another book like the cross of Christ and he yeah, what a waste been, of time that was you know, what a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> but um do you think he had a bit of a soft spot for you as a medic I mean he was the son of a surgeon and um, did he start the doctor services at All Souls? I really don't know the answer to that. Certainly the doctor services were a big thing. And, and yes, you're right. He he was fascinated by the world of medicine. He he was the son of this very eminent Harley Street cardiologist. Mm. And he used to joke about that. He said, I remember him saying, you know, one of the first phrases I learnt at my mother's knee was coronary thrombosis. <laughs> <laughs> he did have, he had a, uh, both a fascination and a respect for the medical world um, and he and of course Harley Street was in the parish and he often had contact with with senior doctors and with the Christian Medical Fellowship and so on so yes I think that was one element I, I think and he did once say to me that he often thought that if he'd ever had become a doctor instead of a clergyman he probably would have become a paediatrician uh, so he he had a a very a particular interest in children, a soft spot and a, an interest, mm. and and so he was very interested in my pediatrics and and my training. I think also the fact I was a musician. He was he was uh, a gifted amateur musician. He was a cellist um, earlier mm. on, and and was interested in music and understood 
quite a lot about music and and had, was very encouraging to know and and the whole theology of of music as a as a means of expressing of the of something in the creation to express worship so there were a number of things and 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 we just clicked i think he he was such an interesting person and so i mean he asked very probing personal questions you know you felt he asked very good questions and very thoughtful questions and you and you felt you couldn't just mm. <laughs> dismiss it all um you know and, and and but and he also as as our relationship deepened you know he started to become more and as he started to trust me i think he started to become more mm. self-revelatory and, and i can remember a bit later on and i suppose i'm now about 27 probably a newly qualified doctor single man and and we're meeting up and just chatting in private and i say to him you know I, i'm just wondering whether god is calling me to be a single man like you uncle john and he says something like i don't really recommend it to dear brother <laughs> and, and he then proceeds to tell me some of his struggles as a single man mm. about the loneliness about the temptations about the women who'd set a cap at him, mm. um, about you know traveling alone across the world, and and I remember thinking, gosh, if I was to go out into All Souls and broadcast what I've just heard, it would create an absolute scandal. Mm. Um, and yet, but he's modeling um, integrity, mm. authenticity, humility, vulnerability, and of course, and he's leading our relationship and friendship on. To a deeper level, you know. I so it's not just socialising, is it? It's it's sharing life, you know, like Paul does with the Thessalonians, and sharing not just the gospel but life each step of the way. It is, and and particularly, ultimately, sharing his heart. That that's what I see <clears throat> the essence of <clears throat> biblical or gospel shaped friendship is about. The, the sharing of the heart and and you know when Jesus says to his disciples I call you friends because everything that the father has told me I have shared with you it's that and that's what he was doing with us and it, you know that that he he shared his deepest concerns the things that were just he was utterly passionate about the things that had formed him he was now in private and and in a in a sense of a confidence of trust an openness he he was sharing himself and it was extraordinary because um he was such an extraordinary man and almost every time i walked away from bridford muse um having spent this time with him i can remember thinking lord i know i can't be like him i know he's a one-off i know you know and yet just give me a touch of that just just may i have a little touch mm. of what stott has because it is so attractive mm. Now, we will hear more from John Wyatt next time in the second of our two episodes with him. But for now, it would be really good if you could pray about a new project. Of course, the invasion of Ukraine has now been ongoing for about two months. And while we cry out to the Lord for it to end as soon as possible, we're acutely conscious of the millions who are displaced or fleeing and suffering. One response resulted from a conversation that a few of us were having, three of us who in fact doing ministry in that part of the world. 
So Nay Dawson from the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, IFES, working in Europe. Uh, Michael Prest, who's the director of United for Mission, or UFM. And I, from Lang and Preaching Europe's team, have worked together to create a website, UkraineConnect, all one word, dot net. It's a site to help match mainly Ukrainian believers with people around Europe, but mainly in the UK at the moment, offering their homes as hosts. And so far, over 160 individuals have been matched and they've already started arriving and uh, making uh, a new home, albeit for a brief time. But there's also much more to do. So please pray for the logistics and the relationships that will result from this project, especially for safety and protection for all involved. And of course, we pray that in time, all who want to and are desperate to, in fact, would be able to return home. Thank you so much for listening to The Stott Legacy. Thank you also to my Langham Partnership colleagues who have helped to make this podcast a reality. And special thanks to Vic Marseille from Langham Partnership UK and Ireland for all her hard work in editing and producing each episode. Please do leave a review wherever you get your podcasts, recommend it to friends, and above all, tune in next time. Until then, goodbye.